So this month, we're looking at courage. And it took courage for Israel to leave bondage in Egypt, didn't it? It took courage for them to arrive in the promised land. And believe that this was the land that God had promised them and yet it was occupied. It took courage for them to establish themselves from a tribe, from a series of tribes working independently into a nation coming together under a king. It took courage for them to then begin to say as a nation, as a, as a state, as a people coming together, we want to establish ourselves as a bastion of God's light for the rest of humanity. Because that was the very next step of what they needed to do. And bring that love of God, bring that, that into that context there in that Middle Eastern space. It took courage for Jesus to climb Calvary and give His life on the cross for you and me. Because at the end of the day, Israel did not achieve that vision, did they? They did not become the bastion of hope and light that they needed to be. Because there was an element missing in that formula and that element was Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Jesus loved the house of the Lord. When He throws out the vendors and the money changers, doesn't He quote the psalmist where He says that your, my zeal for the house of the Lord compels me. Who was that psalmist? Do you know? It was David. It was the same one we just read about. Because David so loved the house of the Lord that when he had his palace built and he was there sitting in the lap of luxury, he looked out and he saw his God was living in a tent in the bush. And he said, no, Lord, come and live in my house. I will set aside a room for you to come and live in my house. And to this day, the Hebrew word for palace and temple are interchangeable. Because the palace of David would become the temple of God. Hallelujah. I asked chat GPT, the artificial intelligence of all 21st century wisdom. Have you heard of this? <clears throat> I put in there, what would be a modern Jewish temple? And that's what it spat out. I have not cropped or manipulated this image in any way. And I think it's interesting because you can just about see the source of light is a book. Even the artificial intelligence recognizes that the heart of God's worship is in His Word. And I was compelled when I saw this. Because I'm sorry, but I happen to think ChatGPT is stupid. I, I do, I do. And I think that those people who are saying, you know, look at this, look at this newfound wisdom. and blah, blah. No, it is human wisdom being spat out to you. It's like watching a parrot repeat phrases. He does not know language. He just tells you what you think is there. But sometimes it is revelatory. And this was one of those moments. Because it said, hey... Maybe you don't know what you worship, but this is 
He could have put anything up there. That was a dangerous exercise, Reverend, wasn't it? But he didn't. We're talking about the house of the Lord. And this week I'm focusing in on that being a place for grace. Our passage reminds us that David was a sinner. So God's favor had to pass over him. But yet God's favor upon Israel had to find its resting place in someone. And that one was going to be his son Solomon. His son Solomon. Not because he was such a great and awesome king. Not because he did all of these amazing things. I think the greatest thing that King Solomon ever did was actually say to the Lord God for me to reign over your people. I need wisdom and that is the one thing I ask of you. Solomon was the product of David's sin. Did you know that? See, this is grace. Grace is when God looks at us and looks at a sinful world and says, Nah, I'm not going to have it. If you were Australian, he'd say, Yeah, nah, I'm not going to have it. And he would go on and then restore. That is grace. The people of Israel have been asking for a temple, have been asking for a place to worship the Lord. God was not going to withhold that just because of the sin of one man. His love needed to be poured out, but that one man's sin was blocking it. So he addressed it and punched through to the other side. This is our God. This is the God that finds you in the dark place. This is the God that finds you in the miry clay. This is the God that wants to build a house among you. So today we're going to talk about this. And my prayer is that you go home and you are excited about the fact that your home is God's home. Where you are, there is God also. If your heart is open, this can be His dwelling place. By His grace. In Exodus we see that God comes down upon a chosen man. Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Ur of the tribe of Judah. You know him? You know what amazing things he did? The miraculous things that he did? I want to tell you, every Jewish child in the world knows his name. Because he designed the elements of worship in the temple. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge on all kinds of skills. To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze. To cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of crafts. The tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant law, the atonement cover on it and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories. The altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils. The basin with its stand and all the woven garments. The sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve him as priests. And the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. Now, if I could preach on this topic for the rest of the year, I might cover one-tenth of the significance of everything that is mentioned there. One-tenth. Because 
what we need to underscore is that the temple is meant to be a recreation of Eden on earth. Now you might be thinking to yourself, whoa, hang on a minute, that's a big claim. But that is what theologians have come to agree upon and understand and comprehend. Now we, as citizens of the kingdom of grace, we need to ask ourselves, did we forget about this? Do we not realize that this was going on? And what does it mean for us living after Jesus, living after the cross? See, if we're talking about churches, church buildings, congregations, people coming together to be the inhabiting dwelling place of God, we cannot deny that the first time He did that was to a desperate, desert-dwelling people who had nothing. And God provided them everything unto nation. And this is what I want to share with you today. In Genesis, we see that there is water in Eden. A river wandering the garden flowed from Eden from where it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx is also there. I normally remove the um, postscripts when I put up verses up there, but I wanted to leave that one up there. That's frankincense. Aromatic resin. That's frankincense. It's supposed to be used in the temple. It is used as part of an act of worship. It was given to Jesus Christ by foreigners. Tells us in the book of Matthew. Who knew because frankincense was known as a worship element of the Jewish people. And so they knew that the king of the Jews would need this to worship, to lead his people, to take them forward onto that mountain and claim it for the Lord. Amen. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. Again, I've left, I've left the marker there because I wanted to remind you. So that is speaking of Ethiopia. The name of the third river is the Hidekel. Those of you who are astute and know your Bibles might see that I've changed the name of what was written there beforehand. That is what it is in the original language. And there's a reason for that and I'll explain it in just a minute. It runs along the east side of the Ashur and the fourth river is the Parat. And this comes from Genesis 2 verses 10 to 14. Our Bibles identify those last two as the Euphrates and the Tigris. Rivers in the center of Babylon, Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia literally means between the rivers and that is what they identified. But you've got to understand that this is looking back. This is looking at a time when the geography of the world was different. This is looking at a garden in a place where rivers are flowing out. Why? Because God's river flows out. If you look in Ezekiel, the temple is dissected by what? A river. Because this is a symbol of God's provision. And these four names, they actually mean things in Hebrew. You got to remember, they didn't just come up with these names for, for, for no reason. Pishon means overflowing, a river that floods. Some commentators talk about how that might be identified as the Nile. 
Because the way the Nile would flood would cause for the overflowing and the growing of the, um, the plants around it. Some talk about how Gihon means flooding or flowing water. Some talk about the Hidakel meaning rapids or fast flowing. And Parat, fruitful. You can imagine why Hebrew hearers in, the, in establishing the Bible heard these names and thought about places that fit this description. And for this reason, some of these rivers are identified. That doesn't mean necessarily that that is not 100% accurate or 100% correct. But I believe the author of Genesis wanted us to comprehend that every mode of water that gives life was meant to come from one place. From the garden of our Lord. From paradise. That the source of life was meant to be there. In 1 Kings, David has retired. He has not retired. He has renounced the throne. And he says, Take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon my son mount my own mule and take him down to the Gihon. A little creek. I've seen photos of it. I was going to put it up there, but it was very pixelated. It's a little creek now in the Jerusalem foothills and have Zadok the priest. Zadok means righteous. And Nathan, Nathan means gift. Have them anoint him. The word anoint is Meshach, Messiah. And have him made king over Israel, blow the trumpet and shout, long live the king Here in this passage, we see all of these words from Genesis 2. Because it's meant to connect us to that reality. You see, the person of Solomon traditionally for these folks was intrinsically connected with that place of holiness. In one of our other sermons in this series, I will share with you. How the temple was the epicenter. Oh, it's sliding. How the temple was the epicenter of God's righteousness, God's holiness for Israel. And they believed that from there, as, the, as that was the center, it kind of reverberated out throughout Israel and then for the rest of the world. And that everywhere where a Jewish community found itself, it would take a remnant, a remnant of that which made that temple holy. Do you know what it was? I'll give you a clue. Hezekiah found it. Hezekiah found it under the rubble of Solomon's temple. It was the word of God. The Jewish diaspora took it throughout the world and still does. Because they believe that that is where it is. But we understand something different, don't we? Because we understand that righteousness, Zadok, comes from a different place. We understand that the gift of God was named Jesus. And we understand that he was anointed Meshach. Not for his own righteousness. But for ours. Though we don't deserve it. Friends, I want to tell you. I'm going to give away the story now. When we gather in church. 
when we come here, yes, sinners though we may be, we're actually going back to Eden. That's the goal. That's the aim. Genesis tells us that in the cool of the afternoon, God spent time with Adam, his beloved child. God wants to spend time with you. God wants to connect with you. Maybe not in this very place, but in his dwelling place where he invites to connect with you. Genesis goes on and talks about how the Lord God planted the garden. Planted. We plant gardens, don't we? We don't, we don't build them. We don't remove. We add. God planted a garden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were trees in the temple. Did you know that? Not bark trees with leaves and the gardens around the temple had that. And do you know what they were for? Do you know what they were for? They were to decorate the space for the Gentiles. Because that was where the Gentiles came. There was a court for the men. There was a court for the women. Yes, they probably had some kind of hanging plants or something there. But only very specific plants could be used in that space. So they didn't allow for lots of different um, gardens because they would have brought weeds. And weeds were a symbol of sin. And anyway, I, don't, I, I could go on. But basically, we know that when Jesus was in the temple and he was preaching, there was rubble because they were doing construction. Not because there were gardens. Not because there was earth exposed. And it was bricks that they were throwing at him. Bricks of the holy place. The temple gardens, however, were for you and me, Gentiles, citizens outside of that original provision whom God had afforded a measure of grace. No. The tree in the temple was made of a solid piece of gold. It was about two and a half meters tall. And it shone with the light of God. Samuel slept underneath that tree, under its light, as a little boy. I like to think because he was afraid of the dark. And the light of God does not easily go out. The Lord says to Bezalel through Moses, Make a lampstand of pure gold, hammer out its base and shaft, and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with it. Six branches extended from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. We do not describe a lampstand as having branches technically. Maybe arms, bulbs, yes, perhaps. But here it is very literal. It is meant to be a tree. It is intended so that in that moment when people entered the presence of God, they were reminded that they were entering Eden. That first place where God 
entertained humanity. We find also that there are angels in Eden. This part of the story is not so nice, but I do feel I need to explain it. So in Genesis 3, at the end, Adam and Eve have committed their sin and they're being cast out. And the God and the Lord God banishes Adam from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Eden had to be protected. The righteousness of God, the glory of God had to be protected because of one man's sin. Can you imagine God's heartbreak? I know when I say to my kids, hey kids, if you behave, we'll get KFC on the way home from church and they'll do one thing wrong and we all miss out on KFC. (laughs) That's very important to me. (laughs) I think it affects me more than it does them. Because I feel like I have to say this. I am, I am bound by my word and God was bound by his word. God was bound. But his love is boundless. So he says when he makes the new Eden in that temple, make an atonement cover. A mercy seat. A place where I will encounter with humanity. Some of your translations, as we read earlier, describe God's footstool. It's a comprehensible, understandable interpretation of it. But today, the footstool is where I sit back to recline after a long day and put my feet up, isn't it? I like that picture. I like the picture of God coming to the temple to be with Aaron and Moses. And he sits down and he pulls his seat back and puts his feet up. Why? Because Eden was for God's rest. Did he not create and then stop and rest and entertain with his children? When I entertain with my children, I put my foot rest up and then usually fall asleep. But that is something that we need to comprehend. God loves being with his children. As much as I would love that interpretation to be factual and actual, it is not. Think of it more as a stepping stool, just like we have here. It's an opportunity for God to come down and take a step to be with us. And an opportunity for us to go up. Have you ever thought about it like that? What an awesome invitation. Awesome in the very literal sense. It fills me with awe. On that lid, there are angels. Two cherubim to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant of the Lord that I will give you. And there, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant of the Lord, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. There I will meet with you. I could talk about this for so long. 
Like David, the house of the Lord fills me with zeal, with passion. Initially, in my sermon illustration, I wanted to talk to you about all the churches that had influenced and affected my life. I've experienced worship in tent meetings out in the bush in South Australia. Singing over a guitar with two strings broken in a shed without walls in an Aboriginal community in Arnangu lands. had the privilege to be at the World Presbyterian Conference at Yang Nak Presbyterian Church in Seoul, Korea. 50,000 youth singing as with one voice in English, Indonesian, Korean, Portuguese. It was amazing. But what was most amazing is that in each of those encounters, I encountered Christ. I encountered God. For his house is not just one house. Where two or more are gathered there, there I am also. And we can encounter with God. Here, there, everywhere where those who love him are together. In Romans 5, Paul, a murderer, a persecutor of God's church, one who found grace that was unshakable and unmovable and impactful, says, if the many died by the trespass of one man, that is Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Remember the rivers? There was a lot of language of overflow, wasn't there? For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? I don't feel I need to summarize that. I feel that that speaks for itself and stands on its own. But I want to encourage you instead. Live it, my friends. In those moments of despair, in those moments of darkness, let's go back to Eden. Let's go back to that place where we can encounter with God and sit with Him in the cool of the afternoon. Be it opening your word, be it in prayer, be it in fellowship with other believers. In those moments, let's go back to Eden. For that is where God's house is meant to be. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much that you are here, that this is your place. So may we ever be in your dwelling place and know your love and compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.